Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Hello and how's it? Welcome back to another episode. This is Moving the Needle Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Niedling. But this isn't about me. I've got an amazing guest. So if you're new to the show, welcome. I've been doing a lot of race reviews, but it's a long time uh, colleague, friend, uh, racer. Um, and this is, as I've told you before, a great reason for the podcast is to get to catch up with people that I don't see. Um, she's now released some news that she's not racing anymore and we'll get deep into that conversation because it maybe didn't end the way she wanted, um, but she's been handling it so well. It's none other than three times four cross world champion and multiple BMX world champion. I got to know in her mountain bike career. It's Annika Bierten and you've moved as well lately. So, um, welcome to the show. How's it been? Thank you. Yeah. First of all, thank you for having me, Andrew. Uh, it's great to uh, talk to you again. Yeah, recently just moved uh, from California to Arkansas, Bentonville, and um, lots has changed in the past couple of years. Um, but yeah, things are good. Things are good right now. What is, uh, I've heard that name from uh, my uh, marketing manager at Scott. He actually's mentioned, uh, we're talking trail bikes. And he's like, well, I know it's, it's you know, we're talking about the Alps and it, it's not Bentonville or whatever, or you can ride it there. And I'm like, how has he brought this up? It's quite sort of a hot topic in mountain biking in America or, or what is up with the place? It is. It's uh, actually called the Mount mountain bike capital of the world. <laughs> right it is now. not really. Or it is. It is. It is. Yes. It's, and it's a very unique place. The riding here is amazing. It's not like it's um, high mountains. It's rolling hills. But the amount of trails and trail system that they have here is fabulous. It's really amazing. It's it's the community just breathes cycling. Um, and um, actually, if you're familiar with Walmart, so the Walton family, um, they're from this area and they are fanatic mountain bikers and they have uh, put a lot of money and funded a lot of the trail building here. And they're really trying to get people on bikes and yeah, this place is just, it recycling. It's really, the trail, the riding is amazing. It's super fun. And um, I've been really enjoying my move here. And what, uh, how many kilometers have they got? Like, what what are we talking when it's like oh. trail network and the home of mountain biking now? Oh, it's it's insane. I, I believe just here in Northwest Arkansas, we have over 500 miles um, of trails. And every single day, they're building about two miles a day, new trails. Yes, it's wild. It's like I, I think I only probably I've been here for half over half a year now. And I think I probably rode about like maybe 10 percent of the trail system. No way. <laughs> I still have a, I still have a while to go. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what took you out there? Did you go and do some clinics or riding before that you were aware of it? Or how did you even get to know of it? Yeah, I actually went here for the first time in 2019. Um for a clinic, mountain bike clinic by Kenny Belay. Um, he had set up the women's shred clinic that are part of the Bentonville Bike Festival now. And that was my first time going to Bentonville. And at first I was like, wow, the trails are amazing, but I didn't think too much of it. And then I got back here in 2020 and I was like, man, this place is actually really cool. And it really started growing on me. And I just kept thinking about 
kind of wanting to move out of California. So here we are, Edsonville, Arkansas. <laughs> when did you move to America though? Because did you do that um, like after your racing mostly? No, I actually moved to Well, not to after your racing, but near the, near the end of it. Yeah, actually I moved to Cal made the move to California. It was about 2014, 2015. Um, I was spending my winters mostly in California because the weather in the Netherlands is not great. You know, short days, a lot of rain, cold. I was like, ah, you know, I really like California and um, made the move. I was riding for Specialized, was making the switch to Enduro. So I knew I had to like, you know, find a place where I can really put in the hours in the winter as well. Um, you know, endurance training, riding on the bike. And that's when I moved to California. So that was like 2000, I think it was the end of 2014. Yeah. No, fair enough. Yeah, I was just thinking, I guess, it was the end of the, the forecross into the Enduro because you weren't there maybe through all of your career, even though you had American sponsors and some some big supporters. How? <laughs> I've just been looking, looking you up, and obviously I knew you from Netherlands, and then I saw that you started racing BMX at four. How on earth does a, a BMX racer from Netherlands become one of the world beaters in mountain bikes? <laughs> when did you switch, and how does, how does that work? Yeah. Oh my God. It was actually kind of like a funny story, but, um, yeah, I was racing BMX, loving it. Um, that's how I grew up. Like you said, I was four years old. I did my first race. And when I was about 16, 17, I had a friend of, um, my family that kind of knew somebody in the mountain bike world and they were looking for a girl that wanted to ride downhill. And they were like, well, we know a girl that's really good in BMX. She has great skills, and I'm sure she wants to try mountain biking. And that was actually um, the team manager of B1. So back in the day, we all know the B1 team. And uh, so they took me along on a training camp to the south of France. Uh, I've never seen a mountain before. I think I left the Netherlands like twice before in my life. So I saw these massive mountains, and they basically put me on a downhill bike pushed me off the mountain and it's like, good luck. <laughs> and I loved it. You know, it was something so new. I remember I crashed every corner because two brakes, I come from BMXing. I only know one brake. So full suspension bike, always rode a rigid bike. Um, but yeah, I just fell in love with it. I was like, this is a new challenge for me. I love mountain biking. I love the sport. And, you know, I was in the team with, uh, boss, the beaver, Gerwin Peters, Oscar size, um, we had Pascal. Um, there were so many, you know, awesome riders on that team as well. And I got the opportunity to, you know, start more local, like in Germany and Belgium with racing. But yeah, that's how I rolled into mountain biking. Shucks. So the team decided they, they need a, a female. And then you went from crashing in every turn at the first training camp, like fish out of water, um, to being on that team. And they sort of stuck with you and and sort of coached you up into the international ranks. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I just, it was really like for me, for, I guess it was a, such a more of a breath of fresh air, you know, but you're riding off of a mountain versus like riding BMX, which is flat in 30 seconds. Like I remember literally every now and then grabbing a tree because of like the speed and not knowing how to get, do flat corners, never done one before, you know, always did berms. <laughs> But uh, yeah, they took me along and they saw, you know, that I had something that the, the skills, probably the skills part, what I had from BMX that, you know, I could make it work in mountain biking and they sticked with me. And 
yeah, I mean, the first couple of big races, race, races like World Cups, I didn't even qualify. You know, I was in the back of the pack um, and I, we're talking about, what was that? The end of the 90s. We're talking about before 2000s, the 1900s. <laughs> the 1900s. <laughs> sounds very long. <laughs> sounds, it sounds like a long time ago. Um, it is yeah, unfortunately a long I, time ago. <laughs> I remember I was in, I think Leger was one of my first World Cups. And I just remember like looking up to everybody, you know, I know Tarianas was there, um, Missy Jovi, Lee Donovan. Uh, I crashed in the dual slalom. I didn't even make it to the downhill finals because I had like 10 stitches in my calf because I crashed. And it was just like one of those things. But, you know, you, you learn so much from all of that. And yeah, slowly and it's, Steady, slowly, I started improving in downhill. I made my way up to like the top 10 and even a, a podium in Lace in Switzerland. That was my best like downhill World Cup. So, and then, yeah, then downhill kind of, you know, forecross came along, dual slaloms. So that's when I started making the change to um, forecross because that was really in my, in my, or, or lining with what I've always done, you know, with the BMX background. So it was the perfect combo from both of them. Yeah, I was going to say, there's a saying, it's in your wheelhouse, which is quite a good pun for uh, yeah. uh, mountain biking. But uh, I'm, you must have been so excited when this four-cross sport sort of started taking off because there was a time there when it, you know, it was sort of, I don't know if it was threatening downhill, but they were trying to get it more mainstream. And that seemed like the sport that was going to do it, take it to the people or maybe to cities. It makes sense that it probably should have done better than it did. Yeah, totally. I, I still believe that forecross is such an amazing sport for spectators, you know, and also for the racers. It's such an adrenaline rush and there's so much to it. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's a bummer. It never really progressed over these like the past years, I would have to say, you know, I think it might have been 2015-16 where it slowly um, started becoming less and less popular or the UCI wasn't doing a lot with it anymore. Um, but I think it was 2003, 2004, that was like the time, or might've been even earlier, but that was the time when I really started doing it and focusing on it. Like I wasn't specialized back in the day as well. And they were like, Hey, you know what? We want you to focus on four cross. That's it. Like, um, you know, you have so much potential in winning those races and it really fits you. So we're just going to focus on that. And that was amazing as well, getting that support for, for that discipline. What do you think could have been changed or if it got revitalized now, like what could you do? Do the tracks need to be bigger, different, uh, safer? I mean, it just seemed like it sort of got dumbed down. It was just this mini BMX version of it. If it wasn't mountain biking. Yeah. Well, I think we, it's so hard to like say now because everybody had their own opinion and there was always like the BMX rider that wanted to be more BMX and then the downhill rider wanted to be more downhill. And then there was the cost of it bringing in uh, trail builders, uh, bringing in the dirt. Um, so I feel like it was a little bit of everything that, you know, didn't, didn't click at the end anymore with getting it really bigger and bigger. It kind of stayed on the same level. And then the UCI started bringing in the sprint races, like the eliminators for um, points for cross country and the Olympics. And I felt like once that started happening, they kind of pushed away fall cross. They were really looking for like, 
the Olympics and we were always hoping that Fulcrist was going to be in the Olympics, but unfortunately that never happened. Yeah, fair enough. I guess when the budgets dry up, then the track is the same as it was the previous year. And even if there's good feedback to try change it or make it better or bigger or more exciting for the fan base, yeah, I guess it sort of dried up with the Olympics. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. But um, back to those days, was there a point where, so you mentioned how, how challenging it must have been from for a BMXer to come to mountain biking. It takes some time. Was there a time when you said to yourself, okay, you know, I'm here to stay or, okay, this mountain bike thing is now looking like a good idea, whereas previously you might have been having fun, but maybe you didn't believe you could get results to stay in it? Oh, yeah, there were definitely some tough times in the beginning. Um, there was, it's such a big change coming from BMX. You know, there's uh, not only the bikes, but the course riding downhill, you know, and then suspension setup, tires, uh, all that stuff you don't have to think about when you're riding BMX. <laughs> so it's a big change. But yeah, I think I actually knew the, almost from the first training camp that that was what I wanted to do. I, I was like so in love with it and I thought it was such a cool sport and uh, you know, meeting like Anne Caroline Chausson and like those big names that had won the world championship. And I always dreamt of like winning world championships, you know, like in a elite one. So not in like a age category, but the, the big one, that's always what I wanted to do. So I was like, okay, that's my, this is my new challenge. This is my new goal that I want to achieve. It took me a long time, <laughs> but I did get it. <laughs> it took me a few years. What what was that like? I mean, you're a three-time world champion in elite category. What was, what was the first one like? The first one was uh, very emotional. <laughs> that was uh, 2011, uh, Switzerland, in Champery. And it was, it was hard because all the years before, uh, people were – I was always a favorite, you know, and I got second, I got third, I got disqualified once, I missed the podium, I crashed. Like, I, I felt like everything, but I, I hadn't won yet. So people, you know, around here are kind of like, well, this must be your year. Are you going to win it now? And I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm going to try, you know, like, but everything was in like the months before everything was just about world championships. You, I'm sure you know how it feels as well. You know, like everything you do every day is about working towards that goal. And I remember feeling really good in, in, in Champery for that race. And the course was really technical, which I always liked. The, the start ramp was super steep, which I liked too. I, I'm more of a, I always say I have chicken legs. I'm not a very powerful rider. So, <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I didn't even qualify fastest, but I knew I could, I was like, could pull it off if everything went well and everything just fell into place. And I remember crossing the finish line. It was, my parents came to that race. They um, traveled all the way there. So yeah, crossing that finish line, I was like, whoa, you know, I still get goosebumps thinking about it. So it was really, really emotional, really cool to, you know, stand on the podium and finally get that jersey and hear your, your national anthem play. Like that's like, that's the moment where you're like, okay, this is what I what I did it all for all the sacrifices, all the hard training. This is, this is the moment. So, yeah. That's incredible. Do you, can you even remember to like those moments before the finals, you know, the, you know, lining up with three others um, and the, and the gate drop, like, is that, 
like a distant memory or were you sort of just so in the zone you can't remember it now? Like what what's it like lining up for a four cross world championship final where knowing like if it goes well, you could win, but it's not like a downhill where yeah. you're on your own. There's so many things mm-hmm. to think about and, and riders that could take yeah. you out or, or, or crash in front of there's, you. Exactly. There's so many different factors um, with four cross, but yeah, it's just like the sleepless nights before already. I just remember being very nervous and not able to eat much. And we actually, on the day itself, I remember making, um, changes to my gearing. So I put a different chain ring on in the front to go a gear lighter out of the gate. So I would really get that fast snap. And, you know, that's something like, well, you know, gamble, I'm going to do it and hopefully it works. And, yeah, I just remember lining up in the gate as well. And Melissa Buell, I think she was on the inside of me. And then Fionn Griffiths was in the gate. So I know with Melissa, I mean, like, you know, she means, she means business when she's in the gate. And when, you know, Fiona's is on the, on the gate, you know that she can just pull moves on the track, that she comes out of nowhere and you'd be like, oh. But, um, yeah, no, I got a great snap out of the gate. And I remember railing the first left-hand corner without brakes. I hadn't done that, but I knew I was leading. So I was like, I'm not touching my brakes. <laughs> <laughs> I just almost felt the tires roll off my bike. But, um, yeah, and then after that, it's just an adrenaline rush going down. You know, you're trying to do keep it together and try to write your lines, but it's very nerve-wracking. Yeah. That's incredible. What where's the medal? What do you do with these things? I I mean I can relate. I'm also skinny, so I don't have that much power out of the gate. That's why I never went to four cross, but uh I don't have a world champs <laughs> medal. So what do you do with these things? Is it on display at all times? <laughs> you know what? It's kind of funny. Like I'm not too too wild when it comes to like you don't walk in my house and you see like all my jerseys and my medals hanging off of the wall but um i actually do have my uh, world champs medals hanging in the living room yeah they're on my uh chimney <laughs> I, I think those so, yeah, you're yeah. Al- i think you're allowed to be proud of those i don't think it's yes, too in your exactly. face you worked your whole life no. to something you set as a goal yeah. as, a, as a youngster that's pretty cool exactly exactly that and then like um one of the things that I love as well is the Crankworks, uh, Queen of Crankworks trophy. Those things are always really cool and massive. So that's on the wall as well. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I saw that you won that and a, and a Spirit of Crankworks one as well, which you said meant quite a lot yeah. to you. Especially, I mean, I guess before you retired, it's one of the last, I guess, achievements or trophies you kind of have for, for your racing career, I guess. Yeah, I mean... I, I didn't even I had no idea to to get this to win the spirit award you know that was that was so fantastic it was in 2019 and I managed to get third that year in crankworks in the overall which I was very pleased with competition was really really good that year and um, yeah and I I lost one of my best friends that year as well uh, Carlin Dunn who was a mountain bike rider as well back in the day. Um, and then winning that spirit award just like was really special, you know, that was like recognition for just not my race results, but for the person that I am and the, how do I say, like the passion that I put into cycling towards others as well with camps and clinics and kids. So getting that recognition from Crankworks was really, really special. That was really nice. Yeah. Really awesome. Was Colin, was he on Specialized with you? Is that how you got to know him? 
No, no, he was not. And he was already, he stopped racing um, in the early 2000s. And he was really into um, road racing in the last couple of years because um, when he passed away, he was racing at Pikes Peak in Colorado. Uh, is that road motorbikes? Motorbikes, exactly. Oh, shit, yes. that's so sad. He Was he from Santa Barbara yeah. then? Yes, correct. He was from Santa Barbara. Yes, yeah. shame. Yeah, that's that's yeah. tough. You never want to lose yeah. someone, as we have in our mountain bike community again. You know, there's been a, been a few lately. It's yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, push our limits, you know, all the time. And we, uh, unfortunately, in mountain biking and motorsports, um, yeah, those limits get, get pushed a little bit too far sometimes. And, um, yeah, that was really hard to, to, you know, deal with losing a friend like that. And even, you know, when you talk the day before, you you know, you wish them good luck. And then, yeah, they don't they don't get to the finish line. That's That's, you know, no words can describe that feeling. No, definitely not lost. You just, nothing prepares you for it. I mean, I just hope to use it as like a, a lesson to maybe everyone that's listening and us, like to live life to the fullest, as cliche as it sounds, because could have been any one of us with the, the sport and the dangers that we do on a daily basis. Yeah, totally, exactly, yeah. Well, I mean, I know you've announced it and you've spoken about it and, and we haven't connected and uh, you you know, you have hung up your racing boots, but you for sure haven't lost any passion. I've been looking at the Instagram and the YouTube and, and giving back to the sports and maybe not exactly on your terms or how you saw your end of your career play out, but maybe for some of the listeners that don't know the story, are you happy to share um you know, what forced you to, to move away from racing and, and what you've been dealing with the last two and a bit years. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, just like we just said, life is short. And for me, um, I was in a severe car accident or in a bad car accident and got a severe uh, brain injury and whiplash uh, due to that. So I was it was August 2020. I was actually driving home from riding and I was almost home, last traffic light from home. I was uh, crossing the intersection on a green light and out of nowhere, I got hit in the driver's side of my vehicle. Um, it was a hard impact. All I can remember was like, the only thing I thought was like, I'm in a car accident. You know, you just get across the intersection, California, a lot of lanes, <laughs> just get across all the lanes and got to a stop. And wasn't a shock and shaking. And I remember I, I checked my body. I looked down. I'm like, okay, I, I seem okay. But, um, yeah, that was really wild um, to, you know, all of a sudden get hit out of nowhere in your vehicle. You know, you're just cruising along. And, um, yeah, so I um, sustained a brain injury in that car accident and a whiplash. And my symptoms got very severe the days after the accident. So I knew right in the moment, you know, that something was wrong because everything was a blur, uh, but then you're in a shock. <laughs> you know, there's so much going on. You got police, you know, paramedics, fire trucks coming to the scene. And, um, but I went home, I went to my, my friend's place. I sat on the couch for a while and, uh, you know, um, knew that, something was wrong, but I just made sure I contacted my doctor and my physio to, uh, uh, get 
test set up for the day after. And but the morning after, when I woke up, I was actually FaceTiming um, uh, Boss, you know, Boss the Beaver. Yeah. And I was talking to him, and I was like, man, I was in a car accident, but my speech was like so slow. It was off. My Dutch, I was. I was mixing Dutch and English together and that's like when I started really realizing, wow, this is something is up and it's not right. And I was nauseous, headaches. So anyway, fast forward, um, I went to see my PT. He had the baseline concussion test. He has a baseline concussion test uh, from me already. So he kind of knows my baseline. Well, I obviously failed that and immediately also went to see my doctor my doctor said, well, you have a, a concussion and a whiplash. You have to go and see another specialist. So I went to another specialist that was a concussion brain specialist. And from there on, I fairly, fairly quickly um, went into brain rehab. And brain rehab is a place that um, was no fun, uh, but that's where I really realized how severe the brain injury was. And because I couldn't, obviously I couldn't drive for a little bit and then riding was out of the question because I could only, the only thing I could basically do was hopefully get out of bed in, in the morning and move myself from my bed to the couch because I had severe headaches. I couldn't deal with any noise, light, motion. And I basically had to, well, the first, like there were a lot of tests that they do a lot. And the first test was just on this kind of like a balance board, but it had all these sensors in the floor. So it was attached to like a computer and I was wobbly and I felt off and kind of weird, but I was like, ah, I'm sure I kind of did okay. And then the doctor was like, well, you know, normal people are hundred percent and you're actually at 20, 25. And I was like, I'm what? <laughs> I'm like, and then we started doing more exercises and I couldn't even walk in a straight line. I couldn't stand on one leg and just the basic stuff that there was all of a sudden, all of that was gone. You know, I had to start with like learning how to walk straight again with moving my head. Couldn't do that, you know, stand on one leg. I couldn't do that anymore. So that's like, that was really hard to accept in the beginning and just like, you know, um, going from like a hundred miles an hour with, riding, riding moto, mountain biking, camping, racing, to absolutely being able to do nothing than sitting on the couch anymore. Not even be able to go on my phone, scroll, watch TV, or hardly talk to people because the brain was just out of it. Holy shit, Annika, that's, um, yeah, that sounds hectic to maybe, like, actually realize it's really bad. Where you said, I felt off and okay my speech maybe you're thinking it's going to come back and it's just a concussion and it'll come yeah. back hopefully quick right but um realizing yeah. then and there like this is like you see in the movies you've got to relearn to do things and it wasn't just yeah. you just didn't have to rest you actually had to relearn to do things while resting is that am i understanding that correctly yeah yeah so like in the beginning <clears throat> it was kind of like i had to I just sat on the couch and threw a sock from my left hand to my right hand. And then I try to catch it and uh, follow the sock with my eyes. But in the beginning, I had a really hard time with that because my vision um, was that or my neurosystem between my vision, my balance, uh, your inner ear, the vestibular system, that was some kind of damage in there. And to pin down 
a brain injury is super difficult. You know, you don't really know what's wrong. So it takes a long time for doctors to kind of even figure out where your problem is at. And then for me being like an athlete and a racer, I feel like in the beginning, I really underestimated it because just like what you said, like kind of all you think about is like, when can I get back to racing? That Those were my questions to my doctor. Like, how long do you think this is going to take? Like, I have crankworks coming up in three months. Like, you think we can make that? And they already knew I wasn't going to make that, but they didn't, they didn't tell me that because they didn't want me to give up my fight, you know? So they were kind of like, maybe, you know, like even they knew that this was going to be a long injury to recover from. They wanted me to like keep that like fire in me to keep, you know, start working hard on your brain recovery because actually recovering from a brain injury takes a, a lot of like work. You can't just like, sit on the couch and just do nothing you actually have to like retrain your brain again to make the new neural connections so yeah crazy yeah i guess it's like rehabbing a muscle or uh, an injury that you haven't you know if you haven't used that body part for a while and i've done uh, enough uh, deep diving on longevity and dementia and read books and stuff and and there's ways even at an old age to maybe offset some of these things. So it seems similar that there's other ways to, like you say, so you're relearning things, but maybe your brain's using other pathways. Am I understanding that correctly? To figure out that problem to, you know, if maybe one is still damaged or one area, I don't have the correct medical term that for sure. And you've obviously learned so much in this period. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely read up a lot on brain injuries and looked a lot of videos and all of that, but yeah, you're right. Um, it finds a new pathway or actually it makes new neural connections. Um, uh, but you have to actually be very active in doing that, you know, and it starts by, by doing little things, you know, just walking on a treadmill and moving your head. Um, and then having, I feel lucky too, that I had a, a good group of like doctors around me, specialists in California that really, uh, worked with a lot of like athletes that had concussions and brain injuries. Um, and to narrow down what the problem was, uh, with my brain injury. Um, because from the beginning on, I kept telling them like, something is off with my vision. Like, I don't know what, I don't know how to explain it, but I can't deal with motion. I can't follow like the ball when I throw it. My eyes were super slow. Um, and then I got motion sickness fairly quickly, like driving or um, even when I started trying to ride a bike, like a block around the house, it was just miserable, <laughs> you know? And so they, they, it took a long time to figure it out, but my left eye was going into a spasm. And so spasm means that it rolls away. And um, that that con neural connection was just like damaged, and it had to like I had to retrain that and work a lot on my on my vision. And my left eye is still struggling, so it can't go, or not it can't it won't go as far to the left anymore as it used to be. So I let's I have to move my head more or not try to push my left eye as much as I could. It's really weird. It's hard to explain, and it's even. It's still weird to me, but um, somehow that got damaged in the accident. And um, yeah, what what all goes into this brain recovery? You've mentioned some of these exercises, and then yeah, how long was this process? Maybe until you realized, shucks, you're not going to make crankworks, or you're not going to make 
the race season or your goals, say, in yeah. that first year? What was that like? Yeah. It was really difficult because, yeah, you like I said, you're trying to keep hopes of, like, going to races or going to world championships. So every time I was like setting a goal and I couldn't make it, it was like, I got bumped, you know, I was like, ah, okay, well, hopefully the next one, hopefully the next one. And then because it was in August, but then going into the new season, I had the same, same hopes, you know, like, okay, getting back, try to get back to the season. But at one point, you know, that when you can't even ride your bike for 20 minutes, without getting severe symptoms or even times where I was like super emotional on the bike, just because the brain injury also triggers emotions. And like, just, I had a lot of neck pain as well because of the whiplash and often overstimulation would backfire on my neck. So the neck muscles are trying to make up for what the brain is dealing with. So it was just like that combination of both of them and getting severe headaches or trying to ride and then it would backfire so at one point like it was like kind of like getting clear to me that like this is not looking good you know like I'm so far in and this is where I'm at I can't even ride my bike for 30 minutes like my road bike you know I'm like okay let's just focus on recovering and try to like maybe in the summer be able to get back to racing well summer came along and then you know I because I basically every appointment that I had with the doctor, I was like, you know, what do you think? And then everybody was, everybody was connected to each other. So my, my vision therapist, my brain rehab doctor, my normal doctor, everybody was connected and they talk, you know, about my progress. And then, you know, doctor was like, Annika, we're going to be honest with you. You need, um, we think it's best you medically retire from racing, you know, just because of where you are, um, in your path of recovery, how things have been going and um, your your state right now, how you're doing, you know. So we talked about it a lot and I thought about it for a while as well because that's, you know, a very tough decision to make. But um, I respect their honesty and, yeah, that was a hard one to decide to do, but it was the best thing to do um, because the risk of racing is – so different than just riding your bike um, on a green or blue trail here. Like, we, you know, as well, like what goes into racing is next level. And I don't deal as well with stress anymore. And we all know the stress of racing is uh, pretty high. <laughs> yeah, just, you, like, you, up. <laughs> you don't say, you don't say. <laughs> yeah, it's so, it's so stressful. And just lining up in the gate again uh, between the tape is um, – another it's it's just this level of risk that i that i would put on myself you know like racing you just need to go 110 percent and the risk factor was that it's just way too high for me to go back to racing so yeah that was uh you know i never would have thought that this is the way i was gonna retire um but you can't overthink that too much you know you gotta keep moving forward and i told myself as well, I can look back on an amazing career and um, look at the highs and just, yeah, be happy with that. Yeah, I was going to say, could you imagine a young Annika in, in Netherlands racing BMX and if you told her you'd have BMX titles and world elite mountain bike titles of all things, I'm pretty sure you would have been rather happy hearing that, you know, that that would have been where you were going. I guess you had such a long career and 
and you change disciplines and you're able to adapt. So you must have thought it could have gone on for a while. Um, if you stay healthy and, and lack of a better term, mentally fit, you know, as terms of motivation and, and willing to put that risk. I mean, you can go long, but you had an incredible, incredible career. But it, it just is a tough pull to walk away on with for any reason, right? Whether you go out on your own terms or not. Let me tell you something. <laughs> it's not easier even if you retire somewhat healthy. I'll tell you that for free. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it, it's 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 not, you know, and I I'm doing a lot better with it now. I think in the beginning I was holding anger with it, like anger to the person that hit me as well. Like that person, like especially when I was feeling really down, I was like that person messed up my career, messed up my life, like messed up the Annika that I was, you know, like I felt like I wasn't, I was not even close to the person I was before the accident, you know, and I still feel that like it's, part of that person is missing you know some of my one of my friends was calling me you're just Annika 2.0 now you're a different version but it's a better version I was like "Eh, I don't know if I can agree with that but I like I like the positive thought of that you know but it's 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 hard to retire like that when it wasn't your own like call it wasn't your own decision somebody else made that decision for you but um yeah, it is. It is like you said. It is what it is. We move forward, and I feel grateful that I'm like that. I'm riding again, and I can ride. You know, lots lots has changed. I'm definitely not riding as fast and long as I used to, but doesn't matter. I'm I'm riding. That all that matters to me. Yeah, I think it's so inspiring to see how much riding you're doing and and the coaching and all that. But like you say, it's it's so difficult when something gets taken from you and 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 i've spoken to a few athletes and 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 seeing it's a very fascinating topic retiring or, or choosing to stop or like you were forced out um, that's even harder but i think even when you choose a part of you does die especially something you associate with as annika 1.0 was a racer and yeah. whether it happened the way it did or not annika 2.0 is not a racer so some part you have to let go, but um, how do you deal with that sort of anger and, and resentment to to something that was happened to you and and someone did that to you? Um, I'm not sure yet. I'm still in the process of like uh, giving that a little like place in my heart. Maybe you know, like I know the other person didn't do that on purpose, but it happened. You know, and. The other person was distracted by a device and the anger of that and changing my life is still in there, but you got to move forward. You know, like I said, like that person doesn't do that on purpose. It happens. It happens like, you know, car accident accidents happen on a daily, daily basis in life, but nothing I control it can't control about that anymore. Anything that the only thing that I can do is try to move forward and keep working on my progress and um, yeah, try to, look at all the positives and the positive things that I can do again. I think that's so important because you can't stay being stuck in the past. You know, that's not going to do me any good. It's not going to help me. It's not going to help my mental health. Um, not saying that it's not hard at times, but you got to move forward. So I think that's just really important. Are you allowed to, you mentioned the device. Are you allowed to talk about that? Is that what part of what happened? They were on a device or distracted by one? 
Yeah, yeah, they were. Um, I mean, I'm still in the that's I'm still in the middle of a lawsuit, but um, part of that was, um, you know, that's in the police report. That's that's what happened. That's what the other person um, said. What happened? Um, and yeah, I mean, that's yeah, exactly Fuck, that's what happened. Man, that is such <laughs> a lesson to everyone out there, and me, and everyone. These things. Oh, that's so scary. Well, thanks for sharing that. I hope we all wake up and and realize how dangerous it is to have that thing anywhere near a, a car. That's for sure. Yeah. And, and yeah. um, yeah. What are, I I think you're inspiring the listener here and me as well. And and dealing with this adversity and like you say, you can't get stuck in the past. Even though your your head will go there and anger is a normal emotion, resentment, all these things. It's pretty natural. You'll build that up. I guess it's how you deal with it, how you let it out. What were some of the coping mechanisms you used when you said you had some dark days? And and mentally, you're not yourself, I guess, not dealing with emotion how you normally do, not even aware of it. Did you have some coping mechanisms? Did you have people in your corner, therapists? How, how do you how do you deal with all that? Yeah, um, I definitely had people in my corner that helped me out with that. Um, and therapists, um, even through my racing career, I had a sports psychologist that I worked with. I immediately like, you know, um, set up appoints, appointments with him um, to try and talk about how to deal with this, this injury, the feelings um, with like anger. And yeah, there was, it's not just, there's, I can't even like, there's so much that goes into like an excellent as well. Like now we're talking about the mental side, but there were other things in my body. Like I had a lot of problems with tension in my stomach and stress I couldn't not deal with stress very well anymore and having very yeah very dark days just because I couldn't do anything just sit on the couch and there was one day that was like a bird chirping out on my deck and I got so annoyed that I wish I had a a shotgun that I could shoot it off my balcony because it was chirping (laughs) I was like damn it and like even walking in the grocery store was annoying me because of the sound they had music the people and then, yeah, I mean, not riding is not good for your mental health, you know, or not being able to, 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 to let energy out. And that's what I tell people now too. Like the reason why mountain biking is so good for your mental health is you have to be in the moment. You have yes, to think about yes. like braking, pedaling, um, going through a berm, jumping, like you're constantly thinking of what you're doing and what your next steps are. That's why. It's so great for your mental health because you're not thinking about like, oh, what am I going to make for dinner tonight? Or my boss is being not nice to me or stuff like that, you know? So, but that was really, that was really a big part for me when I was able to actually ride a little bit again. I felt like, okay, okay. I have a little bit of an outlet again. I feel happier again, but yeah, that was a big part. And um, all the therapists and doctors that helped me, um, helped me a lot with just making sure I, um, stay on the right tracks, you know, even my own doctor, he would come out to just, you know, help out with, um, getting a little bike ride in. He would like drive over, take me out for a little ride or invite some friends, but it was very short because I could only hang out for a short time and then I would get overstimulated and then I would have to go home and they would just hang out and have lunch or something. <laughs> That's so but, cool. Uh, yeah. That's so cool. They came out yeah. and, and realized how important that is. How ironic yeah. that the mountain yeah. bike, you know, the thing you did for a living is incredible therapy can be used as mental yes. therapy, not just physical. 
And then the very thing mm-hmm. that could help you get back, you couldn't do. Like, yeah, it, the world <laughs> it works in mysterious ways and sometimes it, in shitty ways, right? Yeah, totally. It totally it does. But yeah, having having those people in your corner and knowing actually that something like that will help you again with making you feel better, just being outside as well. Um, that's just wonderful. And having friends that do grocery shopping and, uh, make sure that you, you know, still put a smile on your face when the days are pretty dark. Um, I journaled a little bit too. And sometimes I look back at the videos, nothing that I have ever posted on social media, but I was journaling for myself that I was like unable to get out of bed on some days, you know, and just knowing to look back and see how far I've come. You know, knowing that like now I can look back and even on hard days, I'm like, well, you know, I actually still improving. I'm still working hard at my my rehab. I might have setbacks and bad days, but they're nothing like how they were in the beginning. You know, so I think that's really important for yourself too. like realize how far you've come, even though the steps are really small when you have a brain injury. It's it's I say like it's 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 a marathon. It's a marathon for recovery. That's really valuable. Sometimes you actually have to look down if you're always looking up. You're going to be disappointed. Um, you yeah. have expectations are set potentially too high, especially in rehab. But you're looking down. It's an interesting way. Like sometimes look back at where you've come from. You might be feeling bad or yes. you're not progressing in writing or work. But that's actually key. Like, yeah. Remember to look down. There's always someone with it worse than you, as well as you were probably yes. worse off a month or two ago. And you're actually doing well. But I guess that's the yeah. athlete in you, eh? Always striving, wanting to be better. Like, yeah. hey, I want, so I'm going to make the next Crankworx, right? And the doctor's looking yeah. at you like you're absolutely mad because there's just yeah. this long path he that he – Yeah. No, I mean, I'm sure he was, yeah. but I'm sure he yeah, admired yeah, yeah. and respected that your first thought is is to get back out there. And um, yeah, now and that I've you – Yeah, I've, sorry. No, I was like – and the thing that I've always told myself as well is like there's – nobody but you that has to get through it there's nobody else but you that have to like you have to figure this out yourself because no matter like how many people you have in your corner how many therapists like they can give you the tools they can help you out but in your mind you have to like make sure that you don't you don't stay on that couch feeling sorry for yourself or have pity with yourself you know you can for a little bit because i'm not that this was a serious injury, you know, but there also has to be a point in your life or a moment where you go like, okay, I know this is bad. I know this sucks. And, but, you know, I have to make the step forward and I have to change this. I'm, I'm the one in charge, you know? So I think that's always very important too. Oh yeah. I mean, that's preaching to the choir. I think that's incredible. You have to take ownership, right? Yeah, I mean, no one's going to get you out there. Like you say, you have to do the physical therapy. You have to get out of bed on those dark days. And I think for people to realize, like, Annick has had an incredible career, but you've been through this crazy, crazy low, and you're coming out on top fighting, like you say, 2.0 version. What's it like now having the bike and being able to use it sort of as meditation? Um, are you more grateful when you're out there? What What does it look like now when you're – as you said, you're not riding exactly how you used to, um, mm-hmm. but you're you're, in, you're improving all the time. But what is bike riding yeah. to you now? A lot has uh, shifted, and I really found new, uh, like I could say, like goals or fulfillments. Uh, as an athlete, you ha- you always look for that fulfillment, like doing well, being on the podium, 
And that was gone for me. I didn't have a reason to really had a reason to get out of bed other than going to therapy and try to improve on that. But the drive was kind of gone with other things in life. So, you know, making the move to Bentonville um, was a big part of that, you know, getting out of California and moving here. And I feel like it's so amazing that I got into coaching. It wasn't my first like reason to move here, but it was on my mind. I was like, maybe I can pick up coaching. Let's see how I do if I start doing that and how I feel. And I started doing it. And it's so amazing because it's a, it's a fulfillment for me, actually, like teaching people to get better at riding a bike or teaching them how to jump is, I feel so grateful for, I can actually pass everything on what I've learned in my career. You know, I have this knowledge, so what do I do with it? You know, like actually I can pass it on. I can pass it on to the next generation of racers and help them out. And just seeing somebody, a weekend warrior learning how to jump and yelling woohoo in the air because they first got their first airtime, you know, that's where I really realized like, this is awesome. This is really cool. And you have to like, just look at new things for yourself to be, um, yeah, proud of and that like gets you out of bed in the morning and excited. So this is definitely something that I'm really stoked to do and to be here in, in a community that's passionate about writing, just like myself. And uh, what can you do it all year round there, the weather? Sorry for being a little naive on the States of America. <laughs> no. But is it is it is it year round there or what's the winter like? Yeah, it's almost all year round. Like we we can have a little bit of snow in the winter, but nothing too crazy or too long. So, um, yeah, you can actually do it all. It gets really hot in the summer, uh, like hot, hot. But um, it's still, yeah, you can you can basically ride all year round. Yeah. That's amazing. And um, something that I'm curious about, and it's come up a bit on the podcast, being a female in this industry, uh, maybe while racing as well as now with the coaching, mm -hmm. it seems like such a growing a demographic and uh, to see the stoke on all the ladies faces and I see it in our shop a lot of our customer base um, has moved over to that side and uh, I I love it I think it's so cool that the sport is encompassing of of all demographics oh it's it's been amazing it's so wonderful to see that like the we actually had the women of Oz it's a group of women here um, in Bentonville that started their own club they just had their first sunset summit and we had over 200 females come here, travel here for that event. And it was really amazing to be part of something like that. Like who would have thought, like, especially if we think about like 10 years ago or even 20 years ago in mountain bike racing that we have just 200 females coming together for a bicycle event, you know, and it's, it's so amazing to see, everybody out on the bike and the women out of the bike and younger girls getting into riding mountain bikes. Um, I think it's, it's amazing. And I'm happy that actually um, the companies and the brands are supporting that now too. They see that and they acknowledge that. So that's just fantastic. Yeah. It's, it's incredible. It wasn't, wasn't quite like that back in your early racing days. Like, can you speak to any of that? Was it different? Uh, maybe convincing companies that, they need a female racer or that a female podium yeah. can add value. Like what, what was that like? Yeah, it was different, totally different back in the day. I would, I would 
I would say so, you know, I think like for us, we always had to fight for a spot on the team or being able to get paid for what we did and not have to work part time and then use that money to go racing, you know. So um, that was definitely harder in, you know, like until I would say maybe five years ago, six years ago when all of that really started changing. Um, but I'm grateful that that is changing now too, you know, especially with the younger generation coming up that they're able to do this full time and getting acknowledged that doesn't matter um, if you're a, a guy or a girl um, or like Crankworks, you know, paying the same amount of price money. They were the ones that said like, we're going to pay, pay out the same amount to uh, females and men's for the price money. And that was such an amazing step. That was such so great for them to do. Yeah. I mean, you've had some part-time jobs in your early racing career, right? Like it wasn't that yeah. everyone looked at you on pro teams or some factory, some not, but it wasn't always the case, right? No, I, I worked as well. Yeah. I worked in the early days. I, I worked in a record store part-time and uh, yeah, that, just, you know, normal job. Like <laughs> but old, I'm always old grateful that I... vinyl records? No, I was actually the era of CDs. CDs oh, okay. and DVDs. You would actually Sorry, I didn't mean to them, call you know? I didn't mean to call you old. No. I just when you say like a record <laughs> a record to me is the big one. Yeah, yeah I know. <laughs> they were selling those as well, but it was still the times of where everybody would buy a CD when like a new band had a, a new CD out, they would go and buy it so they can hear it. Um, <laughs> when last did you listen to an album? That. When last did you listen to an album? Like if you think back to so, the day uh, when CDs came out, you had an album and you, like, you knew the songs. I don't even know songs' names now, let alone an album name. It's not a thing, same. right? I know. It's not a thing anymore. You just go on Spotify. That's all you do. Um, yeah, the last time, I, I don't know. I can't even remember. No idea. It must have been a long time ago then. I still that... do buy vinyl, so you do. Yeah, I do. Yeah, I have a I have a big passion for music and. Okay, well then it's a fair question to records. ask if it was a vinyl store. You so you still have vinyls in your house. Yeah, I do. Yeah, yeah. And you don't DJ I, yeah, or mix it. or anything. You just put them put put a single oh, no. one. On. Yeah, I just put a single one on. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. Maybe that should be a new skill that you learn. I think I'm okay. <laughs> I don't think anybody wants to hear that. <laughs> I don't think my neighbors will be too happy with me trying to mix some records here. <laughs> and uh, speaking of new school, though, I can't not ask you about e-bikes um, and how oh, that's yeah. sort of been influencing your riding as well as the industry, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, the e-bike, the e-bike has been a big part of my recovery because with a brain injury, um, it was really hard for me to get my heart rate up uh, or not hard for me to get my heart rate up. My heart rate would go up easily, but because your heart rate goes up, you get the, you build a pressure in your head. And because of that, I would immediately get like headaches. So with the e-bike, I was able to keep my heart rate low and go out on a ride and and spin the legs and still get a ride in. So like, um, I love riding the e-bike, uh, even before the accident, I already loved it. I think it's, it's a great, great thing that we can add to, you know, mountain biking. It's just, it's a different, a different bike that you add to your collection. And, uh, I still ride it quite a bit because I still struggle with 
um, the longer rides and my heart rate going up and just putting more uh, pressure on the brain. So uh, yesterday I actually rode my normal bike and didn't last that long. So I get I still get bumped out when I do try because still athlete in me wants to try. You know, I keep trying. I'm like, hey, let's push that a little bit. And I'm like, hey, like, uh, time to go home. So, yeah, but the e-bike has been yeah, fantastic. I love it. Well, that might wear off for you because I just ride the e-bike because uh, it's fun. And I saw one of your one That's... of your comebacks to someone that asked you why you fit, why you're an e-bike. Didn't you say because it makes me happy? I think that's one of the best yeah. comebacks to someone yeah. giving someone shit on e-bike. Well, because it's fun and it yeah, makes me it happy. Is. Next question. Yeah, uh, more smiles per miles. <laughs> that's that's quite a cheesy cheesy one but i'll, I'll yeah, run with yeah. it i don't i don't mind that yeah. at all yeah and i feel like you know i i not here people are very open to e-bikes here and welcoming and, and people don't really look look at you for riding an e-bike because a lot of people ride e-bikes here but in california i got often i got looked at it or even say like why are you on an e-bike you seem like a fit girl and i was like well you don't know you know, my story, why I ride it. There's a reason for why I'm actually riding it. And it gets so many people on bikes. It's amazing. I actually uh, started coaching. Uh, his name is Frank. He's a client and he's 76 years old and he got himself an e-bike and he contacted me and he's like, Annika, it's like, I need to learn how to ride an e-bike. Can you help me? And um, I met up with him and he had a, some basic skills on a bike, but he was a uh, a fanatic road road cyclist but wanted to get off the road and wanted to start mountain biking also because it's heck, fairly dangerous riding on the road and i thought that was so inspiring a 76 year old buying an e-bike so he can keep riding he's like my legs are giving up i my legs won't work anymore i'm too old but i still want to ride my bike and he's like you know just fantastic that you get can get somebody on that not that old but like yeah 76 and get them out on the bike and on the e-bike so it's great that's incredible i don't think we've got any excuses i mean 10 years ago whenever the e-bikes weren't around they that wouldn't have been a thing the poor guy would have had to probably you know stop stop riding and now it's getting people like that out yeah we see it at the store all the time just they go oh can we have a a debate about this e-bike thing. I said, what's the debate? There's no a debate. There's, you know, arguments to both sides. I just get one. Yeah. You, you're going to write, you're going to yeah, end up exactly. riding it more because you've got a family, yeah. you don't have time to keep fit. So then you feel bad when you go out and you only last 40 minutes, you're going to end up making excuses to go out just for a quick hour on the e-bike. You know, if you can afford yeah. it and there's a place for, I mean, for all bikes, if you can both, if you can't, they really do have such a cool place in the industry. I can't wait to see, say, 10 years from now what it's going to be like. Oh, it's just we're going to see a lot more and a lot smaller engines and all of that. And I think the people that are kind of like still fighting it are uh, when I do like I do some e-bike clinics as well. And I do start with trail etiquette because I think that's very important. And a lot of people, that's where it goes wrong out on the trails. When people on e-bikes uh, don't behave themselves especially versus normal people that are uh, not normal people, but people that are on a normal pedal bike, you know, like rule number one is you're on an e-bike, you slow down, you know, and you really slow down. You're not going to fly by people that are also trying to climb on a normal bike, you know, respect them. 
And then I always say, smile and say hi, because they're probably jealous that you're on an e-bike and they're not. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, but I feel like that's still a part of where we can uh, educate people a little bit more when they buy a bike, um, that they're, that they are aware of other people on the trail, because not on the downhills, not, I, I don't believe on the downhills, you're much faster on an e-bike, you know, than versus like a normal bike. If it's a, it's a fast downhill, you'd probably be the same rolling speed, but it's mostly just like going uphill and passing people on the trail. It's where, uh, I even sometimes, you know, see people fly by me on an e-bike and I'm like, man, you really could have been a little bit more respectful and slow down. And, um, yeah. So I think like hopefully people will will kind of learn a little bit more about the trail etiquette when it comes to riding e-bikes. Yeah. And I mean, uh, as some people that buy e-bikes are quite new to mountain biking, so they're not even aware of any etiquette. And then the e-bike makes it worse because yeah. they're just coming up on people yeah. and they think they've got the right of way. And it's like, hey, we're all sharing the trails. <laughs> But you know, some e-bikers exactly. do give other e-bikers a bad a bad name, and you're probably right. Some people suffering up on the hill, and then next thing, this guy just cruises past and almost knocks him off. Um, yeah. It really it doesn't really help, does it? <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> what's no. um What's your view on? I know you do social media, and you do a great job, and it's part for the sponsors. But we were sharing some texts offline. And you said that's maybe a, a topic. It's clearly been on your mind, you know, the pressures of social media and posting. And yeah, I don't know what it's I like know. to be a female on social media. That's that's a whole other thing as well. Yeah. And I was actually listening uh, the other day. I was listening back to one of your podcasts with Martin Söderstrom. And uh, I had never listened to that one because I was scrolling uh, further down on, on the podcast podcast list. And I was really interested to hear his story. And I was uh, it really surprised me as well what he was actually telling about the social media that he struggled with as well. You know, he as a female, uh, as a male, sorry, and then versus me as a female as well. Like I feel like with the injury, I struggle a lot with it. And I saw Tanny Seagrave posting quite a bit about her concussion and her recovery because kind of what we talked about earlier, like when I – saw a video of myself in rehab and I was wearing glasses or for a while I had to wear like an eye patch in therapy and just I saw this girl a person that I I didn't recognize and that was myself you know and then I was like okay how do I share this online with my followers like my followers might want to see what I'm doing and my recovery but my second thought was always immediately, what are my sponsors going to think? Are they going to be, you know, talking to each other? Like, Hey, did you see, uh, uh, Annika? Did you see like, she's doing all this therapy? And like, that's what I think, you know, in my mind, I'm like, they might be thinking like, Oh my God, like she is not even close to going back to riding. So that's a really, it was really tough to find a balance with like showing your struggles on social media and what you're going through and being vulnerable because I also didn't really want to post and constantly feel like that, you know, people would feel sorry for me because I hate a pity party. You know, I, I don't really like that. I don't like that attention. I'm not that kind of person. So I really started struggling with that. And I still struggle with that. I still don't know really how to find a balance with uh, posting what I go through, especially on my, on my days that are more difficult or the therapy that I go to every single week. Um, yeah, I just, 
just it's a struggle. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. A lot of people don't realize the struggles that as an athlete um, that come with social media and the pressure that is behind it. And um, yeah, that's always an interesting topic to talk about with people. Yeah, that episode with Martin resonated with a, with a lot of people. I've got some of the most messages from that. That was early on with him opening up about that. And um, it's crazy to think someone like that has challenges, you know, as a super yeah. successful male, good looking, from the outside, looks like he's got everything going on, right? Uh, but mm-hmm. you never know what someone's going through and you never know what struggles they are. And, and the social media can be a, like a very tough, mean place as well. Instagram's pretty positive as a whole, I would say, which is great. But like you say, mm-hmm. it's it's all of us showing our best side in inverted commas, right? And you internally yeah. feel like you're never enough. I mean, yeah, uh, you never posted enough. There's never enough likes. And people must go, what are you talking about? You got these followers, you got sponsors, you're getting paid. Just shut your mouth. But I think it's a yeah. it's a really uh, powerful and important topic just to make people aware of. Yeah, and also like, yeah, I also I also feel that um, what I see now is with the younger generation or with parents, and I get the question often now too, is that kids coming up to me like, how do I get more followers or how do I get oh, more likes? Goodness, you know, really? like what what do you do? Like, how do I get the sponsors? And my first response is like, just be yourself, ride your bike, you know, get, get on the podium if you want to get sponsored and don't worry too much about like being liked on social media. But you see what's happening now too. a lot is that parents are pushing a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old kid already, you know, like they're, they're in charge of their social media um, page and they post everything that that kid is doing. And there are some amazing young kids out there. Don't get me wrong. I love seeing like a seven-year-old already doing a backflip. It just it blows my mind. But then I start thinking about like, how is that kid going to deal with all of that when he's this young? And then five or six years from now, he's becoming a teenager and has to deal with that pressure because you, you feel like you constantly need to I kind of like, it's kind of like racing, you know, you want to be better every single time you want to like gain followers, you want to gain like likeness and you feel the pressure from sponsors, you know, they're looking at how many followers you have. They look at how many interactions, they look at how many clicks you get on your website. I think a lot of people don't realize that, that there's so much more behind it um, that is either affecting the athlete or the kid and the rider in the long run, you know, or even now, you know, like I said too, for myself, it's like, it's, it's a, there's pros and cons. Like I just said, like, I love social media too, that I can share a lot of positive things with my fans and followers and inspire them or share my story because a lot of people have brain injuries and they relate to my injuries. So find, I guess it's finding that balance for social media. What is the hardest part? No, it is such a, it's a balancing act because we're lucky to have it and it forms part of what we do and, and we do other things to provide value, but that's definitely one of them. Um, I guess me and you, and I speak for both of us and correct me if I'm wrong, we're not only about that. Um, then you're just chasing numbers. We're, we're trying to 
promote the sport and and you do it through your passion and now you're coaching and and but sharing your story brings its own challenges to you and worried about sponsors seeing the wrong thing but there's so many of those followers that might get so much you might change one of those persons life like you know 180 they might there might be someone that hears this and goes shit i was going through so many struggles but anika went through worse and look where she is now she decided to focus on the positive and she's going to go deep into coaching and content and you know maybe i should should try that you know yeah i think and that's that's the the one thing that i always try to remind myself to you know if i can inspire or help just one person then that is that is so important you know and that's like that's the the power of social media in a positive way and i feel like if you have if you run a social media or you have a social media like I always try to tell myself, what is my purpose? What is my purpose with it? What do I like to like share with my followers? You know, and I think that's a, a good thing to ask yourself if you have social media, you know, what do you try to come across uh, to other people? And um, yeah, just just try to find a balance with the struggles of life, the real the real things that everybody deals with versus like, you know, the positive stuff and get people stoked on riding bikes and mental health and all of that. Yeah, no, that's really critical. I think you have to try be as authentic as you can, and and that might lose you some followers, right? It's technically not winning the game of social media, but maybe you're winning it uh, for yourself, that fulfillment, and and at the end of the day, hopefully you're happy. And if people see that you're happy, then they're inspired and they go out and buy bikes. And I hope the sponsors can yeah. see that as well. You know, they're investing in Anika, yeah. not the likes of Anika all the time, but what's Anika doing now? How is she bouncing back it's, from what could have been fully a career ending, not a, a racing career that ended? You could have potentially moved away from riding in general. Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. And I'm so grateful as well that like all my, almost all my sponsors sticked with me, you know, and I'm, I'm so grateful that like they did that. I've, um, I've made sure that I stay in contact with them very well. And I kept them up to date in what was really happening because, you know, you need to let them know you can't, you can't fake that, you know, you should not, you should be honest to these sponsors like this is happening. And also when the time came up that I had to retire from racing, you know, but also stay on the positive side, let them know that there's, that I'm going to keep working towards getting back to riding a bike, you know, but um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that we have a really awesome community and brands that are sticking with athletes um, through thick and thin, you know, and that they gave me the time to get through this part of my life, you know, and also transitioning from like moving away from California where everything got just too expensive for me, medical bills piling up, just the stress of life there, and then making a big change to go to Arkansas, you know, and everybody kind of knew what I was transitioning into and they gave me the time for that. And I'm glad they did. And, um, yeah, we can, we can look forward now into what we can, what I can grow again here. So. Well, I hope one day to, to visit, it sounds like such a hot spot to come and check it out. I'll, uh, I'll wait for my invite <laughs> in the post to, uh, that festival there. I've heard of the guys, some guys have been to, it sounds super fun. Are you able to watch yeah, racing? Do you still follow it or is it too tough since the transition out of it? Or do you enjoy tuning into 
World Cups or crank uh, crankworks. Yeah, no, I I still follow it. I mean, so many of my friends still race. Uh, I I rarely miss the downhill World Cup. I love watching that, you know. And uh, in the beginning, it was hard, especially watching like crankworks. I still be like, I, I could do that, you yeah, know. I can, yeah, I know <laughs> I that feeling. I could have been feeling. on the podium. <laughs> oh, that person did that well, or like I'm like, ah. Oh. But you know, it's 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 the past and been there, done that. It was amazing, and um, yeah, I I hope to still you know keep keep connected with the industry and hopefully uh, show up at a few races here and there and uh, see everybody. So yeah, yeah, totally. The old sit on the couch and go maybe just maybe if that per- <laughs> yeah surely you're... if that person got that result yeah. And then you relate uh, to that, huh? <laughs> I I definitely do. I did a few years of that. I'm uh, we'll yeah. have to chat. I'm six years into not racing, so give yourself a few wow, more years. Really? You've, yeah, you've you've gone through a, a way harder and, and different path to get to where you are now. But you mentioned that stress with a bit of a smile, and uh, I do not miss that one bit. The stress of <laughs> of preparing and and having to. When you're in it, it's it's just part of it. It's not really. I mean, it's stressful, but it doesn't seem that bad. But everyone asks me, "Are yeah. you gonna do? Are you gonna do a race?" I'm like, absolutely, got no desire because I just know what I'm like, and I would have to prepare properly, and then that would bring all sorts of stress. And then you've yeah. got to commit 110 percent and be willing to crash, or that that is a byproduct yeah. of the race, or don't line up. Yeah, and and like. It's, it's kind of like one of those things that it's hard to explain if, if people never race or race at a level that high. There's so much like I, you try to still be the really nice person that you are. But on race days yourself, I always tell my I tell my mechanic, like, I'm an introvert. I don't talk too much. So like, just don't talk too much to me as well. Like, I'm like, I just like it's just stressful. I don't mean I don't mean to be rude. Like, I'm just stressed. <laughs> like, I always warned them before because it's like, I don't want them to be like, man, Anika just, just doesn't talk anymore on race day or it's like quiet. Or like, like oh, she's just so nervous. Yeah. But I mean, they'll be like, she's even more nervous than usual. She doesn't speak. But that's actually what an introvert would do. And I'm an extrovert. Yeah. So if I get oh, quiet, yeah. then I'm super nervous. But if I'm talking a bunch of shit and uh, you remember Oscar? So yeah. 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 No, he he eventually realized, like, I've got to sort of have a good time at the top of the hill. So he would start trying to tell me jokes, but then he's taking a Spanish joke and then he's 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 uh, <laughs> changing it to English and the joke's taking so long. Eventually, I was like, Oscar, I know what you're trying to do. It's probably a funny joke, but, like, we got to get to the start line here. I don't have time to finish this joke. <laughs> so you would be the person that I would get annoyed with at the 100%. starting, at the stop of the time. <laughs> I'm not as... like that person that goes in the corner and has the headphones on and it's like trying to like blinders on and avoid everybody. And then there's the person like just walking around, joking, talking to everybody. And I'm like trying not to get like interact with that person. <laughs> yeah. Like, and you're looking away. at this person going, this is the craziest person. How is this person? How is this getting ready for a race? What are you doing? Yeah, totally. Yeah. That totally. must be like Bernard Kerr like at the top of a race. Yeah, Cedric, Cedric Gracia. He oh, would be goodness. that person. Yeah, <laughs> right? Cedric. Oh, yeah, actually, Missy, yeah. Missy Jovi. 
yeah, there was there was some some yeah, there would be uh it's 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 interesting too. It's cool to see the different ways of preparing for a race and how everybody is different and uh yeah, yeah, but man, racing is awesome and I do miss it. It's uh yeah, it's something that that I lived for, you know, all my life and not having that is definitely uh difficult at times, but you know, there's also a lot of good stuff happening. So just focus on that. And um, yeah, we keep moving forward. One pedal stroke at the time, you know. Well, isn't that, I think, a fitting way to end on uh, a gem of a quote there. One pedal stroke is the time and everyone moves forward. <laughs> Annika, I, I am so proud to to have been on this chat with you. And, and thanks so much for opening up, which has been just such a tough time in your life and you've just bounced back so well. I know it's taken taken some time and some ups and downs. Where can everyone follow you along? What should they be looking out for? Anything else I've missed or you want to share about this, you know, path forward? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I'm still going to keep working on my, my rehab. I go to therapy every week and um, I think that's very important for people to know that if you deal with a concussion or brain injury, first of all, get yourself checked out. You know, it's so important to, to have somebody evaluate you after you hit your head. Don't underestimate it. It takes time. It takes a lot of work. So take time for yourself to recover from a concussion. And um, yeah, other than that, you can follow me on Instagram, uh, Annika Beerton, um, website, uh, crank it up MTB for my coaching business now that I've set up. And yeah, I just want to thank you. I want to thank, you know, all the sponsors that stick with me, friends and family that, um, been through me to, through my my uh, highs and lows like I like I said to you the other day you know life is a roller coaster we have uh, ups and downs and uh, we better buckle up for the ride because it's a wild one. Oh well, thanks so much yeah strap yourself in <laughs> life is a roller coaster racing is a roller coaster Annika that was uh, amazing and um, yeah awesome advice to everyone else and if you want some more info I actually did an episode with Dr. Ewan Spirits. He's the Crankworks doctor. So scroll down in the podcast feed, but you guys know what to do. Like, subscribe, share it with a friend. Hopefully you guys got a lot out of that. And I think a lot of people can gain from Annika's story. So make sure you share it with them till the next one. Thanks so much. Peace.